0: Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 18. We're going to be in John 18 as we continue to move through the gospel of John. If you're watching online, we're certainly glad that you are tuning in right now. We do want to invite you to join us in the room. The room's packed and it's a lot of fun to be here in the room. I want you to be here with us. John chapter 18. Some time ago, I was driving down the road. You, know, you just get these random thoughts. And the random thought that I had that day was, do deer and cows get along? Like, have you you ever wondered that? Of course not. It's a ridiculous thought. But I I was just wondering, do they get along? I mean, they're similar, and yet there's a little bit of distinction. And we all know that if you're pretty similar to somebody else, but there's a little bit of distinction, it's a recipe for war. And so I wondered if deer and cattle fight or if they get along. Really what inspired this was I was wondering why I never see deer at round bales of hay. You'd think that they would just walk up and eat some of that and... And yet they don't. And, and you see them around similar times, early in the morning, late at night. You see them kind of standing there with their young. And so I thought, these are very similar animals. So do they get along? I mean, they eat similar things. They, they act similar. I mean, one doesn't run and leap. It'd be funny if it did, but it doesn't. Um, and uh, they're delicious. They're both delicious. You don't want to hit either of them with your car. And so I wondered, do cows and deer get along. I, I voiced this out loud to somebody and somebody sent me a Facebook video of a, of a deer and a bull fighting and uh, the, the bull was much larger. The deer had those antlers and so there's advantages on both sides of the equation but definitively they do not get along. And so now my thought is while we are asleep at night, is there a battle waging between the kingdom of deer in the kingdom of cattle. You could laugh, but you don't know. You don't know what they're doing at night. You don't know who's winning right now. Could be losses on both sides. This standoff was in my mind as I was thinking about this deer and this cow. In John chapter 18, there's a standoff between two kingdoms. Two kingdoms are at war with one another and the king of one kingdom has done an act of war committed an act of war against the other as he invades ground that has long been held by that king. The, 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 uh, the theme, the idea of kingdom is all throughout the Bible. Maybe you didn't notice it, but it is definitely there. And it's something that I want to share with you. Before we actually look at the text, there's a few things about kingdom that we would want to sort of pick up and, and carry with us to bring with us into the story. The first one, and this is very important, is this we tend to think of kingdom as place. We tend to think of it as a destination, a certain place. So you like the the kingdom of Narnia, right? That's through the wardrobe. Or the kingdom, uh, the United Kingdom, right? That's across the pond. And so we have these places, these locales that are designated place. This is the kingdom. In Texas, there's a lake called Possum Kingdom Lake. All right. And I'm not sure why it's called Possum Kingdom Lake, but I can't help but think of like a redneck version of King Julian and all of these um, (laughs) dancing possums and singing and all that sort of stuff going on around the lake. And at that place, um, King Jim Bob is in charge of the possums, you know, that sort of stuff doesn't happen anywhere else. Just happens there. That's the way that we think of kingdom. However, The Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the idea of kingdom is not a place, it's an action. A kingdom is the reign of a king. It's a verb. It is his action of exercising authority over another, of protecting and providing for his people, of judging between right and wrong, keeping the peace. It is not about boundaries. Kingdom in the Bible is about identity and purpose, and it is all throughout the Bible. In the very first pages of the Bible, God is presented as a creator king. He speaks, he decrees, and it happens. He establishes those who would represent his reign and his rule. He he says that they are good, they are very good, and they are said to be made in the image of the king, to represent the king. And then go throughout his territory, the whole world, and subdue it, to rule over it and to have dominion. And this story continues all the way to Revelation in which Jesus sits on his throne. All the way throughout the Bible, it is about kings and kingdoms, and in particular, the one true king. This is also true, more zeroed in, when we look at the gospels. In the gospel, the story about Jesus, it begins with what? Wise men coming to see the the newborn baby king, the king of the Jews. It'll transpire all the way until that king rides in triumphantly into the city in which the people sing praises to the returning king, to the one who will rule and reign. All of this story of the gospel drives towards the coronation of Jesus in which in the Bible it is um, communicated or the idea of Jesus' coronation is the cross where he is high and lifted up. It is a very upside-down reality, a, a kingdom not like the ones that we would assume. Last week, we talked about his arrest. Today, we look at one of the small trials that he had faced. That same night that he is arrested, the dominant accusation, the question before the judge and the jury before the sentencer is this. Is Jesus a king? Is Jesus the king? That's what we're gonna ask and hopefully answer but before we do let's let's pray together God thank you thank you for those who are gathered here today those who are watching online those who are gathered even now in Greenbrier we pray that you would bless our time together that we would recognize your reign not only in our world but in our hearts that the fact that you are our king that the kingdom is our community would give us purpose give us meaning give us hope For a day in which the king shall return. And all the darkness is made light. All the enemies, all the fighting is stopped, it's ceased. No one hurts anyone. That you rule and you reign on this planet visibly and physically. And that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. John chapter 18, this is what it starts off by saying. It says, Then they led Jesus from Caiphas to the governor's headquarters. The governor's mansion is the way that I have it in my mind. There are three buildings in Old Jerusalem that could have been this location. We don't know exactly which one it was, but it was a sort of vacation home for Pilate. Pilate is a new character that is introduced to the story. He doesn't appear any time before the story, but He he, he makes quite the impact in this story, serves a really uh, pivotal role when we're talking about Pilate and what he's going to do. And it's not so much what he does, it's not so much what he says, although those things are important. It's important to recognize that the authority, the governor, the judge, as it were, in this case, declares, makes the judgment that this person, Jesus, is innocent. He has done nothing that deserves death. That's what he declares. He even washes his hands, physically showing that I have nothing to do with this. And yet, he is such a major part in our faith and a major part in what's going on. In fact, one of the earliest creeds we have mentions that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. So this, this character that comes into the scene, not because of what he says so much, not because of what he does, but honestly, for our purposes this morning, is because of what he represents, because he represents. It says that he is the governor. It says that the governor's headquarters. Pilate is there. And what Pilate represents is that he he represents the Roman Empire. The bad guys, all right? The the, the pinnacle to this point of human authority, human kingdoms. This is what Pilate represents, Rome with all of its power with all of its money, with all of its military conquest, this huge nation, this huge kingdom that spread out its authority and its rule, its way of law and its way of peace, its language and its customs and its culture and its religion and its economy. Rome took this massive pride in its strength, in its education, and in its resources. This is the pinnacle of human power at this point. And Jesus is now standing in front of this representative of the Roman government, of the Roman power. It is really there to undergird that theme of kingdoms throughout the gospel message. That as Jesus is about to die, he is standing in front of the strength, the biggest strength of the human kingdoms at this time. Kingdoms is going to be the point. In this, Pilate, the representative, has two conversations. There are two conversations that we're gonna cover here today. He first speaks to the Pharisee, and then he speaks to Jesus. In that conversation with Jesus in verse 36 is the, uh, is the main point of the whole sermon. It's the main point of the text. Jesus says to Pilate, "'My kingdom is not of this world.'" By Jesus' mouth, by what he says, by, by what it is that he's confessing, he is drawing some sort of contrast, some compare and contrast. My kingdom and the other kingdoms. This is my kingdom, and there are other kingdoms. So there's this compare and contrast, and that's exactly what I want to do this morning. I want to look at the two kingdoms. I want to look at them with you. Let's look at the kingdom of the world, the one that Jesus says he's not a part of, first primarily because that's the way that the conversation goes look at 28 through 32 it was early early in the morning and they did not enter the headquarters quarters themselves they didn't go inside like there was a courtyard they didn't go inside that otherwise they would have been defiled that's what they believed and unable to eat the passover so pilot came out to them and said what charge do you bring against this guy uh, you got to picture the scene. The Pharisees, they, they have them all bound up. They have Jesus all bound up. They get to uh, the quarters there, the courtyard, that sort of stuff. They give them to the guard and tell them, take this, take this guy in there to Pilate. Say, we want to kill this guy. And so Pilate comes out and says, what are you charging him with? And they say, it's not legal for us to put anyone to death. Remember that. They say it twice. The Jews declared. Verse 30, and they answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Listen to what they say there. They don't answer the question. He says, what are you charging them with? Look, we wouldn't be upset if you didn't do something. All right. And that was funny to me because it just seems like that's so much of our culture now. People will convict somebody just on the basis of they made me upset. Well, what did they do? I I mean, they just made me upset. I don't like it. I'm uncomfortable. Whatever that is. They wanted to kill Jesus because, you know, because. Verse 31. And Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Give this out. don't have time for this that's what he says verse 30 it's not legal for us to put anyone to death the jews declare verse 32 and they said this so that jesus's words might be fulfilled indicating what kind of death not who that's important not who would kill him but what kind of death he was going to die earlier in the gospels jesus says that the son of man will be lifted up that that will be his kind of death uh, and that's important. So the Pharisees and Pilate both do a really great job of representing the kingdom of this world. They really do that. If you look throughout the text, it is, it is all over the place. First of all, the Pharisees are really, really annoying in this story. They're just incredibly annoying. Scholars believe that it was likely around 2 a.m. when they go to get uh, Pilate. This can't wait. Two in the morning. How many of you would be annoyed by anybody waking you up at two in the morning, right? That's what they do. And they get to Pilate's home and they say a couple of things. The first one is that they they could not go into the quarters. They stayed outside because they could not go into the quarters. Here's what's interesting about that. In the Old Testament, God doesn't give that law. That's not a rule. They are couching their own prejudice and their own racial divide, their own racism in their religion. They were covering up their racism in religion. And all the while, this is what's so amazing about the way that these people were behaving. They are participating in an unlawful murder, but they want to make sure that they're religiously clean. They don't want to go in there. A side note, it says that they wanted to participate in the Passover. You remember Jesus just had the Passover meal uh, the night before. So why is it that the Last Supper with Jesus, the Lord's Supper, what, what we call the Lord's Supper, why are they worried about participating the day later? because it was a seven-day feast, all right? So it was a week long. And they didn't want to bail out of dinner parties halfway through by going into this guy's house, so let's just take care of this murder real quick. That's what's going on. This hypocrisy that is rooted in their own inflated view of themselves. They also say that they could not have killed someone that it was, it was not lawful for them to kill. And in some ways that's true, but in other ways it's not. In Acts, one of the very first scenes in the Acts of the, God, uh, the Apostles is this very same group of religious leaders stoning to death Stephen. All right? They, they will kill people if they want to. They tried to stone Jesus, they will kill people if they want. It's just that they didn't want to. Why would they not want to? I mean, they obviously want to kill Jesus. Why wouldn't they just go ahead and stone him? Why wouldn't they go ahead and take it? There's Pilate told them to do it. Go, take care of this. Well, because a couple of things. The whole story, what you have to keep in mind is as powerful as they are, they are terrified of the citizens of Jerusalem. All right? The people, the, the mass populace, the people had just said, uh, Hosanna, Hosanna. Remember I told you, just a minute. Hosanna. They were, they were all, Jesus is popular. He's really well-liked by a lot of people, and the Pharisees want to be popular too. And so they don't want to kill the guy that everybody likes. They also hate the Romans. And so how great would it be to get the person that you hate to kill the person that they all like? You know, then you can blame it on him, and you didn't do it. It was him. So they kind of are playing this whole thing to their own advantage. And Matthew 27, verse 18 tells us that the root of all of that is envy. That Pilate knew, just listening to them, It was envious. You see, everything about this, regardless of the religious and the customs and the legal terminology that they use, really at the heart of it was their own self-worship. They were all about themselves. Self-serving, self-centered, self-glorifying. It was all about themselves. And Pilate, he's not any different. If you didn't listen to the podcast this week, the lead-off podcast that David and I do, I talked about a number of the stories in which Pilate has conflict with the Jewish leaders. And and I won't share all this with you. All I need to say this morning is that he is regularly at odds with these people. He has several run-ins with the exact same group of people. And it's always a headache. He was constantly caught between a rock and a hard place. Because remember, he is the governor of this area. He wasn't elected like we elect governors. He was positioned there. And it's a position that he doesn't want. So he's supposed to be in this area to represent Rome and to keep the peace. And he doesn't want, he hates the Jews. All the secular historians at the time record that Pontius hates the Jews. He can't stand these people. They are always messing with him, always causing all of these problems. And so he's woke up in the middle of the night at two o'clock in the morning. And he's supposed to navigate or judge between some customs and some religion that he could not care less about. And so what he ends up doing is what is politically expedient. He just takes a guy that he knows is innocent, that he himself says, this guy is innocent. But I guess we'll kill him. I guess we'll go ahead and kill him. If that's what's going to make you guys happy, I could not care less, all right? It's all about his own self-preservation, his own advancement. Pilate's only motivation is his own comfort and what he wanted. This is the marker. The distinguishing characteristic of the kingdom of this world is that it is self-centered. It's all about me. It's all about what I want. I'm the king. I'm the ruler of my own domain. I set my own course. I call my own shots. I submit to no one. I'm all about me and what I can get and how far that I can be. This sort of kingdom comes up over and over and over again in the Bible. It's also something that you see all throughout your life. These sort of self-centered kingdoms, when you live by the factor of the self-centered kingdom of this world, then what always happens is enslavement and death. Marriages die when people behave as if the marriage is all about their own selfish interest and their own desires. Churches struggle when people start to think that it's all about their own little kingdom and their own little recognition and their own little being included in things. Their own preferences and their own religions. Companies struggle in the same way with whether or not it's the CEO or the part-time contract labor Think that it is all about themselves and not about the company and not about the good of others. Countries, democratic countries are crippled when elected leaders will say anything to be re-elected. When they make a career of it, when they are greedy and pole driven it's horrible and it destroys everything that it touches this is the kingdom of self it's the marker of the way that the world lives all the way back in the garden adam and eve are tempted when they reject their authority and they do what is desirable to their own eyes and to their own way of life. And before we are too harsh on Pilate and the Jews and Adam and Eve, remember this. We are all born captive to this kingdom. We are all born citizens of this kingdom. And sadly, it's not as if we just are residents. We are good citizens of that kingdom. We live that out. Paul explains it in Ephesians 2. He says, Speaking of those who before they come to Jesus, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler, the power of this air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. This is the kingdom of self. This is the kingdom of the world. But now look, in contrast to that, Jesus stands in the face of the most powerful kingdom of that time and he says, what I told you he would say. Look at verse 33. And then Pilate went back into his headquarters. He summoned Jesus and he said to him, are you king of the Jews? Now, remember, this is sarcastic. There's all kinds of sarcasm dripping on this. He looks at this man who's tied up, has been punched in the face a couple of times, who hasn't slept all night. He looks at this pathetic human That stands in front of him, he looks at Jesus, he goes, so you're the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? That's a little sarcastic too. Verse 35, I'm not a Jew, am I, Pilate replied. Your own nation, chief priest handed you over to me. What have I done or what have you done to cause that? Verse 36, this is it, this is the one you would underline. My kingdom is not of this world, says Jesus If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Jesus contrasts the two kingdoms. He lets us know in this most pivotal phrase, my kingdom is not of this world, all sorts of things. First of all, he says, my kingdom. You know who has kingdoms? Kings. Jesus is saying, I am the king. I am the king of a kingdom. It's just not this one it's important because as we realize as we recognize jesus is the king this is an admission that he is the king kings do all kinds of things they protect they guide they provide all of these are the burdens that jesus carries because he is the king and if he is the king you are not that's important for us to recognize as christians sometimes we we, we bow our head to King Jesus on Sunday, and then we live all week long like we're in charge of this thing. If he is the king, then you are not. He calls the shots. He makes the standard. He causes the, he, he plans the mission. He is the king. And then he calls it his kingdom. My kingdom is made up of people, subjects, citizens. These are his people. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is literally creating a new kind of people. Peter explains in chapter 2, but you are a chosen race. This is what Peter talks about people who follow Jesus. is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praise of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. It's a new kingdom. It has a king, and there's this new kingdom that isn't divided along geography or race, race, or culture, or customs. It, it 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 explodes all of that and reaches far past all of that. This King Jesus has a new people. And then he says, My kingdom is not of this world. Now remember, it's not about geography. It's not a place. He's not saying my kingdom is not located on this globe, because we know that his kingdom extends far past this globe. Everything on this globe and every else in creation Jesus is talking about a standard a way to live values and loyalty that's why he says if uh, if my kingdom were in this world we would fight like the way you all fight all together but I'm not fighting we're not fighting this we're just winning it yesterday I woke up to the news surprising news to me that there was a new king in England and I care as little now as I cared yesterday it is surprising to me that Americans would care at all about who they crown in England. We literally established ourselves saying we do not care who the king of England is. That's what we said. I had a cup of coffee and enjoyed it yesterday. Not drinking tea. You know why? Because I'm an American. American. And we are just obsessed with this guy being... Now, I mean Netflix and all. And so it was interesting, but... It's just amazing. I mean, even the good royals moved over here. But during that time, during that time, the archbishop, as he is crowning this new king, he preached a sermon and he did pretty well. He did really well. Who am I to judge? He's the archbishop. He says, I just wanted to read to you a couple of quotes. He's describing the kingdom of Jesus as as counter to, you know, any other king. (laughs) He's standing in front of the king, and he says, "Let me tell you about rule." Jesus Christ announced a kingdom in which the poor and the oppressed are freed from chains of injustice. The blind see, the bruised and broken-hearted are healed. That kingdom sets the aims or, or, or the standard of all righteous government, all authority, and the kingdom also sets the means of all government and authority. Jesus doesn't grasp at power or hold on to status, which is true. The king of kings, Jesus Christ was anointed not to be served, but to serve. He creates the unchangeable law that with the privilege of power comes the duty of service. His throne was a cross. His crown was made of thorns. His regalia were the wounds that pierced his body. Each of us is called by God to serve. Whatever that looks like in our own lives, each of us can choose God's way today. We can say to the king of kings, God himself, as does King Charles here today, give grace that in thy service I may find perfect freedom. So it's, look, we... we I didn't even know that there was gonna be a king, uh, whatever you call the verb, coronated yesterday, crowned yesterday, I didn't know that. And when we set this text, it was over a year ago. Queen Elizabeth was still alive, all right? So we didn't have any idea that, but it's such an amazing contrast as you are literally crowning a human king to say, but Jesus is different and it's better. And his kingdom extends far past the borders of this united kingdom. It's different, and it's better. So like last week, Jesus is standing in an intimidating place, but in neither place is he worried or is he intimidated. Last week, the question was, who are you looking for? And the answer was, you found God. This week, the question is, are you a king? And the answer is, undeniably, yes. He is the king. Look at this message here. This is what Jesus' response says, when, Je- when Pilate says, so you're a king then? Pilate asks, you say that I am king, Jesus replied. I was born for this and I have come into this world. I have invaded your kingdom for this purpose, to testify to the truth. And so what was that message that Jesus delivered? A good word for Christians to learn, uh, just like biblical scholarship, is called synoptic. Synoptic, and I know a lot of you know what that means, but I'll I'll explain it for the rest. Synoptic, it's a a compound word, syn, like S-Y-N, synonym, the same, all right, so that part. Optic, like your optometrist, your eyeballs, eyes. Same view, similar view. Three of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, We call them the synoptic gospels because they have very similar viewpoints. John is different. Uh, So there's four gospels, three are called the synoptics. In the synoptics, all three of them record the message of Jesus, the declaration of Jesus. It says, and then Jesus showed up and he said, repent and believe for the kingdom, the reign of God is here. It is now the gospel message is that you have a king. Submit to him. Another fascinating thing about biblical scholarship or or the topic, gospel. Gospel means good news. And I know you all know that. That's what the word means, good news. However, throughout time, Preachers have often tried to explain it by saying, um, you, know, you know, good news. Like, uh, good news, the hogs won. Or good news, uh, Walmart has a sale on brisket. Whatever it is. This, this is just like good news, that sort of stuff. But the word in the Greek has one application. Gospel is good news about one thing. There is a new king and he is in charge. It comes from Isaiah, it comes from this idea. Good news, you have been captive. Good news, you have been destroyed. Good news, everything is dark and scary. This is the good news, there is a king, and he is coming to make things right. He is here to make things real and purposeful, and he will protect, and he will provide. That's the good news. What an amazing story in which Jesus shows up on the scene. And he says, I've got good news. You can be a part of this kingdom. You are invited. Repent. Walk away from your little kingdoms and submit to the one true king. Twice in this story. I didn't put it up here. I should have. Verse 38. You probably have it there in front of you. And it says um, something to the effect where, and then Pilate says, what is truth? Right? Y'all have that? Two questions that... Pilate asks, Are you a king? And what is truth? Both of them are sarcastic. Both of them are dismissive. Both of them I would like for you to answer this morning. Is Jesus the king? Now, keep in mind, I'm not asking you if he's your king. I'm not asking you if you have submitted to Jesus as the king, because it does not matter. He is the king. Regardless if you try to hold on to the crown yourself, he is the one true king of kings. You can, you get to submit to him. And if he is the king, then it brings us great hope. It brings us great meaning that what he said will come true, that what he has declared is the reality. And then that other question is, what is truth? Truth is, don't these, doesn't this just sound like a question that was said yesterday, not 2000 years ago? What is truth? There is truth. There is reality. The king has established it. And regardless of what you feel and regardless of what you think and regardless of what media says or polls say or whatever you have made up in your mind, there is a truth, a reality that coincides with facts. This is true about gender, This is true about sexuality. This is true about human worth and value from the womb all the way into a natural birth or death. This is true. What God the king has established is reality. And so the question is, will we live our lives in light of those two things? That Jesus is king and that is the truth. A couple of weeks ago, we were down in uh, Texas at an outlet mall. Not the same one that made the news yesterday, but a different one. And we were at the, the Nike outlet store. I am convinced that my family keeps Nike outlet open because we are always buying shoes. Just, oh, I feel like we are always buying shoes. And the second we buy shoes, their feet grow, you know, more and they're already abnormally large. And they just keep buying, just these shoes, these shoes all the time, shoes. We go to Texas, we gotta stop at the Nike outlet mall so we can buy shoes. And I was at this one that's, this this particular one in Grand Prairie is the biggest Nike I've ever been in in my life. It's huge, right? And there's so many people. And I got stuck at the door. You ever get stuck at the door? You hold the door for somebody and more people are walking in and out. Whole families, clans of people, entire nations were walking in and out of this thing. And I'm just stuck there. And I'm waiting on my family and they're in there doing what? I don't know. More socks, more shoes. Just buy all the Nike things, you know? It's great. And so I'm just holding this door and there's in and now This one lady, she had this stroller and there are just like this plethora of Nike bags. They're all just like layered out like this. She's trying to navigate through the door. I'm holding for I got the other door open like this. We're trying to get her through there. Huge group of people come in huge group of people coming out. And it starts to end. The line starts in. I can see it. It's getting closer and closer. And the last two guys I noticed, as they get closer to me, they are covered, head to toe, in New York Yankees attire. Yankee hat, Yankee shirt. Their shoes were Yankee colors. They were Yankee fans. One of them had uh, a gold chain around his neck and had this big old New York Yankees logo. And so as, the, as they began to come through here, right before they get there, I let go of the door and I said, nope, not Yankees, and just kept walking, you know. <laughs> I said it with a smile. They laughed. We all laughed. I knew that the Yankees were in town to play the Texas Rangers that night. I also knew that the Yankees won that night before. And they knew that. That's why they were there. Here's the deal, I could not care less about baseball. I think baseball is the most boring thing that has ever existed on this planet. It's true, sorry, it's true. It's not even American, football is American. I I feel like, I know, apple pie. Um, But I also know this, I am part of the kingdom of the Texas Rangers. And they're the evil empire, all right? I know this, I know this. So I had to act like a Texas Ranger. And they were acting like New York Yankees because when you're part of a kingdom, you act differently. You act according to that king. So my question for you today is, are you living as if Jesus is your king? Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday.